Test. Test. The Mind gang's check. back together. The gang is back together. That is right. Hold on. After a break. It's been a long break. It's but, good to be back. Because my life is crazy. Yeah, but it's okay. That's how podcasts go, you know? Sometimes you just do a whole bunch, and then sometimes you're just like, uh, we can't really do anything right now. Yep. All right. Well, should we get to it? Let's get to it. to the Double Check Podcast. I am Colin. And I am Brett. And it is Compton and Long Beach together, so you know you're in trouble. It's been a little bit of a little bit of... <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> that's, a, that's a Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre reference, Compton and Long Beach t- together. Well, you used to live in Long Beach, so I, I guess that's why you know it. I did. Well, I think a lot of people know that. I feel like people who listen to hip-hop Knew that, but I guess it's more of Long Beach and Ashboro together. So yeah, that's what it trouble. is. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been a while, Brett. It has been a while. Things have been crazy for me, particularly. But uh, it's just a crazy time of the year. Starting a new job, and I started taking graduate classes. So I've been pressed for time. Yeah. No, I, I understand. There's no. There's no problem with that. Um, we're just, you know. Two guys who are trying to share our thoughts with the world, so we're not, like, doing this professionally, but we are back in the studio, we are back recording, and it is good to be back, I must say. Yeah, it is. It's really great, and I'm really excited for what we're talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Um, well, should we get right to it, then? Yeah, let's get right to it. You have the quarter. I have no idea who flipped last. I don't know, either. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Let's you ro- flip. Let's rock, paper, scissors for the flipper. <laughs> Okay. How about that? Yeah, let's do it. One, two, three, shoot. Yes. Uh, Brett had paper and I had rock, so his paper covers my rock. Do you want to flip or do you want to call? I'll call. All right. I'm going to flip now. All right. And here is the official flip. Heads. Brett called heads. Typical. And it is a tail. All right. Because tails never fails. I don't know why Brett went with heads. Um, So I win the toss and I'm going to go ahead and defer. All right. He's going to defer. All right, so over the last couple of podcast episodes, I have been talking uh, about relationships. And so I've talked about soulmates and how I don't really believe in soulmates and then uh, went somewhere else. And then I came to children and and rethinking our relationships with children. And so I'm going to start to land the plane here and I'm going to talk about – covenants this week and then next week i'm going to talk about uh actually one of the hot button issues or at least it should still be and uh i'll leave you hanging on that but this week i want to talk about covenants and particularly in the relationships that we have with one another here on earth a covenant uh if i don't expect everyone to kind of know that terminology so i just want to go over 
kind of where I'm coming from with with that word covenant. And a covenant is not like a contract. You know, a contract is between two parties and party A says that they're going to do something. And then in return, party B is going to do something to reciprocate that. So there's an agreement. And if one party terminates the contract, doesn't live up to it, then the second party is not obligated to fulfill that contract anymore. The contract has been broken. Whereas a covenant can be between multiple parties, obviously, but in this, there is no escape clause. In a true covenant, there is no giving up on the covenant or not fulfilling it because you it is something that's sworn to the very end, right? And so my thesis today is that the best relationships, the most true relationships, and the only really sustainable relationships are ones that are covenantal and not contractual. And this comes from not ourselves, but actually comes from God. And so there's there's a theology of covenants, uh, and it's a particular way of looking at the Bible. And uh, whether you agree with it or not, I think we can all agree as Christians that God does make covenants with people, and he has made covenants with us. And the covenants that God actually makes with people in the Bible and that he makes with us now are really one-handed or one-sided covenants. God covenants to save people, and really we can do nothing in return, right? And if God makes that covenant, he's going to stick through to the end and make sure that it's fulfilled. It's not a contract. He's not going to not live up to his side of the bargain. He is going to fulfill that covenant no matter what. He takes it all on himself. Well, the relationships that we have uh, that we're born with Relationships like uh, children with their parents or the ones that we have with siblings, these family relationships, a lot of them are inherently covenantal because you don't really get to enter into a contract with these people. You are born with them. And I think a lot of people would agree that or, or want to agree that the family relationships that we have, these ones that we're born into, that we're covenanted into, even if we don't like that other person, we're still going to have that relationship with them, whether we talk with them or not, that these can and should be some of the richest relationships that we have. And I think that it's because they are inherently covenantal, that they can't be separated. Even if you separate yourself in space and in time and maybe you don't talk with them, that relationship is always going to be there. They are always going to be your sister or they're always going to be your brother. All of our truly deep relationships, I think, are covenantal, whether they are explicitly covenantal like the family relationships or if they are implicitly covenantal, right? And so there are some more explicitly covenantal ones, and I think church membership is a good example of this, right? Or at least it should be, in my opinion. We can talk about church membership some other time. But in a formal membership in a church, there is a covenant that is made that you are going to be a part, a member of this body, and you are going to fulfill certain obligations. And whether you live up to it or not, you're still responsible for doing that. And it's not going to sever the tie. You're not just going to automatically get kicked out because you didn't live up to the expectation that was given to you. And your church family, the church body, has a relationship with you that they're supposed to do the same. And you're supposed to live together and be bonded together through Christ in this covenantal type of relationship. 
So that's an explicit one that you might you might sign a piece of paper saying that. There's some that are implicit too, and that that would be like lifelong friends that no matter what someone does, that best friend that you have, you're always going to be friends with them, whether they make you mad one day, whether they make you happy or not, right? They're still going to be in that relationship to you. I think that the highest earthly relationships, and especially one, is an explicit covenant that's made before God and witnesses, and that would actually be marriage. So if we're thinking about all of the the earthly relationships that we have, we're building it up now, we get to marriage. And marriage is the ultimate covenantal relationship, or it should be. A lot of people approach marriage as if it were a contract, but... I think that you can only have a fully life-giving marriage relationship if it is covenantal. If it is, I'm entering in this, and at this point from now and forever, I'm not going to let anything get in the way of this. There's nothing that you can do or nothing that you can't do that will sever this relationship. And it comes down to, in covenantal relationships, in marriages, or any other kind of covenant, it comes down to whether you think about your happiness or your joy. Happiness is what's happening in that moment. Joy is an undergirthing feeling that even when things are not good or bad, that you still feel affection, or maybe you don't feel it, but you you choose to put your affections towards someone because you've covenanted to them, knowing that they're not perfect and that you're going to see it through to the end. And so all of this boils down to going back to how God has covenanted with us, that he knows that we're going to mess up. He knows that we are sinful, yet on his side of his covenant, he's the only one that's actually doing anything. And so as we enter truly life-giving relationships here on this earth, all the way from, you know, just friends on up to marriage. Whenever we enter in these relationships, we should not think of them as contracts where you do something and I do something in return. But instead it is, I'm bonding myself to you and there's nothing that you can do that's going to sever that bond. And I want to challenge our listeners as I end, end here. What would change if we actually viewed relationships covenantally instead of contractually? Perhaps we would see that we would be less selfish and have a greater quality of life because we're actually reflecting more of the nature of God. Okay, so the questions that I have are first and foremost, um, just for a little bit of clarification. First of all, you talk about uh, this definition of a covenant and covenants versus contracts. And uh, in one of the early parts of what you said, you talk about how some of our uh, richest relationships as human beings are inherently covenantal. And by that, you're talking about the relationships of children and parents and siblings. Now, when I when I read the scriptures and we, we see the covenants that God made with uh, with various people throughout the Bible – the covenants that God makes, whether it's with Abraham, where he's saying, Abraham, I'm going to turn you into a nation that will bless all nations. I'm going to give you this land. Or it's with Noah, who, where, where he says, Noah, the, the 
Rainbow is going to be the sign of this covenant that I'm never again going to destroy the earth with a, with a flood or with David. And he says, David, I'm going to make somebody reign on your throne forever. Um, or the you, you bring it all the way up to the new covenant in Jesus's blood, where Jesus says, I'm going to establish this new covenant because I'm giving my, my body and my blood shed for your sins. So they all have to do with something that God is either doing or not doing. When I look at these relationships of children, parents, and siblings, I don't see that uh, that aspect to them of something – the, the linchpin of it being something that one of us is doing or not doing. So can you clarify how those are uh, covenant relationships when, when we compare them to God's covenants and we see God is doing something to make this covenant happen? We're not doing anything to make – uh, to make our relationships with our brothers and sisters happen. They just exist. That is true. They do exist, and God has designed them to exist. So that I think that's where my starting point is, is that we have been placed in a relationship not out of our choosing like a contract would be, right? And we can choose to enter into a covenant, covenant as well, right? But every time you enter into a contract, you are making a choice. So whenever I'm talking about these inherently – uh, covenantal relationships and starting with with family relationships, one, they already exist, right? You are going to always be your parent's son or daughter. You are always going to be your brother or sister's sibling. That's a starting point that God has designed as as a family. He is also designed for families to work in a certain way. And so, Whenever I'm approaching this and saying that these are inherently covenantal, God has designed it so that a uh, a parent who is following God will always choose to remain uh, in a relationship with their their son or daughter. Right? God's designed these relationships to function a certain way. Can we mess them up? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. That doesn't make them any less inherently covenantal than uh, than any other, right? They are still inherently covenantal because they were designed to operate in a certain way that you you just can't get rid of your brother or sister, uh, whether you choose to treat them well or not treat them well or talk to them or not talk to them, right? Inherently, in that relationship, before you ever made any choices, God designed it to operate a certain way. All right. And then, so when you talk about the covenant relationship of marriage, you talk about it's a covenant and it's not a contract. Uh, but can you clarify a little bit more what is the difference between a covenant and a contract? Because at the beginning of your, your statement, you talk about a contract is um, is sort of a tit-for-tat kind of a thing, um, where one person agrees to do A and the part the other party agrees to do B in exchange for A. And they they agree upon this, whereas in a covenant like uh, like we just said, we we see God's covenants. God is saying, "I'm going to do this thing." What is? Can you just clarify a little bit more the difference between a covenant and a contract, uh, especially when it comes to the marriage relationship? Yeah. So whenever we come to a marriage ceremony and you have a man and a woman that are making commitments to one another, they are making certain promises to one another. And that would be like through the vows, right? They might write their own vows or they might use the traditional vows. Um, 
So anyway, they are making some type of declaration towards one another. I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to do that. And we both agree on this, and that's how we want to build the foundation of a relationship. Great. Okay? There are terms to the covenant, if you want to use uh, that terminology. Okay? There are terms that you're entering into the covenant with. Now, whereas a contract uh, would do all of those things, whenever you've entered into the covenant or the contract, if one of those things are is broken, if there is a broken term of the covenant or the contract, that's where the two differences happen. A breaking of a term in a contract means that the whole contract can be thrown out now. You break a you break a term of the contract in marriage, if you think about it like a contract, the other party can say, You broke the term, the marriage can be over now, goodbye. Right? That's not how it is with a with a covenantal marriage. It is you said that you were going to fulfill these terms, you didn't. Guess what? This is a covenant. I still love you anyway, and I'm going to choose to work on this because we're still eternally bonded to one another. Maybe eternally is not a a good word, but you understand what I'm saying, right? We're still bonded to one another for the rest of our life. And just because you didn't fulfill the term doesn't mean I don't execute my, my part of the covenant. Just like whenever God makes a covenant to us, just because we mess up doesn't mean that he doesn't fulfill his part of the covenant. He still follows through every time. Now, in practice, we, we know that, that marriages don't work that way all the time. But if they did, that would show God's glory very well if, if people did actually see it through to the end no matter what because that's the covenant that they made. Okay. How do you reconcile the apparent approval of the breaking of a marriage covenant that we find in, in Scripture? And maybe this is more of the the way that a skeptic might approach this, and that's kind of the the position that I'm trying to push back from. But when we read the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Corinthians talks about if a believer marries an unbeliever and the unbeliever leaves, just let him go, whatever. If uh, the, when they when they approach Jesus with a question about divorce in Matthew 19, he says divorce is permitted in the case of marital unfaithfulness. So there are provisions within the scripture for the breaking of a covenant. So how do you reconcile that with this this view of covenants, which apparently seems as though the covenants are uh, are unbreakable? Let's put a pin on that because I'm actually going to talk about that in the next episode. Oh, teaser. I hope it wasn't teaser. a spoiler alert. Teaser. Well, you didn't say what I was going to say, so I'm not going to allude to anything because I want to. I want to save it. I want to save it for the next episode. Okay. Okay. That's fair. Um, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, no, I don't have any final thoughts about this. But uh, it is it is really important to to understand uh, what a covenant is for what the next episode what I'm going to talk about for that to actually make sense to know the difference uh, between a covenant and a contract. So if you have any questions about that, hey, shoot us shoot us an email. We'd be happy to answer if you have any clarifying questions because uh, the next one it doesn't make sense unless you really understand what a covenant is. So, 
So send us that email to doublecheckpodcast at gmail.com. Some people pronounce it Gmail, but uh, we will we will field your questions there as best we can. Excellent. All right. What do you have for us today, Colin? Well, today I am going to continue with examining some of the traditions within the contemporary church system to compare them with the scriptures and see how biblical they actually are. Some of them we've covered previously, and we've moved our way through a brief list that I gave in an earlier episode. And today I want to talk about the next item on that list, and that is evangelical definitions of tithing. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, allow me to read something to you. This was taken from the publications of a church in the area we live, and I'm not going to mention the name because it honestly doesn't matter. This is the way that probably 95% of contemporary Christian churches would define it. And I'm reading now, quote, A tithe is a biblical term that means a tenth and is defined as the first 10% of a person's income before anything else comes out. And that's the end of the quotation. But the question that I have is by whom is it defined that way? The first part is certainly accurate, that tithe is a biblical term that means a tenth. But does the Bible define a tithe as the first 10% of a person's income before anything else comes out? And if not, then where did that definition come from? And the answers may surprise you. Now, for starters, defining the tithe the way that evangelical churches do today is a relatively new development. If you look back in church history at the works of certain prominent theologians, and by that I mean such men as John Wycliffe, John Smythe, John Milton, Oliver Cromwell, John Bunyan, George Fox, Charles Spurgeon, G. Campbell Morgan, John Calvin, and Martin Luther, all of them were of the opinion that the tithe was not something for the New Covenant Church. So teaching that the tithe uh, is 10% of your income is actually a relatively new development in church history. And it has required a redefining of what the tithe is, changing it to something along the lines of what I read a moment ago. Biblically, the definition of a tithe is radically different. And actually, this might be a bold statement, but I firmly do believe it, that not one single thing taught by the church today concerning tithing is biblical. And it starts with the way that it is defined. Now, first of all, if you examine the scriptures on this subject, you'll find out that there are 16 texts in the Word of God that define the contents of the tithe. Numbers 18 is one of the primary ones. And in every single one of these texts, the contents of the tithe is always only food from God's holy land of Israel, which God miraculously increased by his own hand. Biblical tithes could not come from what man produced. They could not come from what man increased. They could not come from Gentiles. And especially, they could not come from outside the Holy Land of Israel. This means if you were a Jew living outside of Israel, you could not tithe. And if you did not work the land, like say if you were a tent maker like Paul or a carpenter slash rabbi like Jesus or a fisherman like Peter, you could not tithe. That is the way that the Bible defines it throughout every single text that deals with the tithe. So right off the bat, the definition given by almost all contemporary Christian churches is incorrect. It's not the way that the Bible defines it. 
But almost immediately, the argument comes back that, well, they were an agrarian society. They didn't have money. Therefore, the crops that they gave was equivalent to our money today. And we say, okay, well, that makes sense, except it's not true. The book of Genesis alone contains the word money 32 times. When Abraham bought a tomb to bury Sarah in, in Genesis 23, he bought it with money. The word money appears 44 times in the Torah before the tithe is first codified in Leviticus 1. So money was very common in the Old Testament. In fact, if you were an Israelite and you were to offer a vow for sanctuary service or pay a fine or pay a head tax or you were a slave and you wanted to buy your freedom, you were supposed to use money for all of these things. Money was actually required. And yet, even though it was required by the Torah in all of these things, money was never included when the definition of the tithe was given. Now, the next argument that is made is, well, Abraham and Jacob offered tithes before the law was given. So the tithe still continues after the law because it was already there before the law. And again, we say, well, okay, that makes sense until it doesn't. Now, first of all, Abraham also received the covenant of circumcision before the law. And the New Testament makes it very clear that circumcision is not a requirement or a principle of the new covenant. So it's not a one-to-one -one carryover of whatever came before the law continues after the law. Secondly, if you look at the account of Abraham tithing in Genesis 14 and then of Jacob in Genesis 28, the text reveals something very different from the way that it's commonly taught. If you examine those texts closely, first of all, with Abraham, well, it wasn't actually Abraham, it was Abram. He was still an uncircumcised Gentile in Genesis 14. He wasn't circumcised until chapter 17. Secondly, what Abram tithed was not a holy tithe. It was a tenth of the spoils of war, which he had gained by attacking the armies that had sacked Sodom and Gomorrah. So also, it was not Abraham's income. It was from these spoils of war. And it happens as a one-time event in Abram's life. Abram lived to be 175 years old, and he tithed one time. So it was not something he did from his income, and it was not something he did on a regular basis every week, every month, or even every year. It was a one-time tithe from the booty that he had gotten in battle. Then one of the main things is nowhere does the text actually say why Abram tithed to Melchizedek. All of the teachers who teach the tithe, who discuss Genesis 14, they say that Abram tithed because he freely chose to do so. Well, may I say very candidly, the word of God does not actually say that anywhere. It does not give the reason why Abram did what he did. And it could be contended that since Abraham was born and raised in Babylon, that he had learned this principle of tithing from the Babylonians. Because in that day, the Code of Hammurabi was the law of the land. And the Code of Hammurabi required that one-tenth of the spoils of war be brought to the local king and priest. Therefore, the tithe that Abram offered, while it's never explicitly stated why he offered it, it could be contended that he was just obeying the common law of the land. 
Finally, the text says that Abram gave 10% to Melchizedek. Okay, fine. But what do we do with that when we realize that he took the remaining 90% and gave it to the king of Sodom? Do we go look up our local witch's coven and say, here's my other 90%? I'm following Abraham's example? So how far can we really go with Abraham's example is the whole point. Well, what about Jacob in Genesis 28? And there again, you notice it's Jacob. It's not Israel. He is still the usurper. He is still the deceiver. He is still the heel grasper at that time. He was not walking by faith at this point because Hebrews 11 tells us that he didn't walk by faith until he blessed Joseph's sons and worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. That was at the end of his life. And two major things can be noted about his vow in chapter 28. Number one, he says to God, if you do this, I'll do this. He's bargaining with God and he's telling God what to do. This is not a man who is walking by faith at this point. Number two, same as in the case of Abram in Genesis 14, this is never again mentioned throughout the rest of Jacob's life. So we don't even know whether or not Jacob actually followed through on it. Those who refer to that passage to teach tithing, they assume that Jacob followed through on it. But once again, may I say, the word of God never actually says that. And I think that that is assuming a great deal. Personally, given the rest of what we're told about Jacob and what a scoundrel he was, I don't really think it fits his character at this time to assume that he ever made good on that vow. So once you realize that the tithe was only ever food, even though they did have money, and once you understand how the examples of Abram and Jacob don't actually parallel the way the contemporary Christian church defines tithing, well, what's left? Well, sometimes they'll try to convince you that the tithe is actually a new covenant principle. And the main text they use for this is Matthew 23 and verse 23, which I'll read in your hearing. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So he affirms that they should have still tied. And the story goes that since this is in the New Testament, then tithes are for the new covenant. And we say, okay, well, that makes sense. But wait, does it actually make sense? What are some things that we observe in this text? Well, first of all, what they were tithing is mint, dill, and cumin. So again, same as in the first point we discussed, the biblical tithe is only food. Secondly, when this takes place, Jesus is still alive. He had not gone to the cross yet. He had not yet established the new covenant in his blood. And he is talking in this passage to Jews who were still under the old covenant law of Moses. They were required to tithe. So if you and I are men and women who are rightly dividing the word of truth, we can see that just because Jesus says, well, you shouldn't have neglected the tithe in this one verse, that doesn't actually make it a part of the new covenant because the new covenant was not in effect at this point. Context matters a great deal. Now, the other issue with the contemporary church's definition of tithing is it's incomplete. 
clearly the contents of the tithe that is taught is not according to the biblical definition, but also the specifics get glossed over. I feel like if you're going to teach the tithe, you need to teach all of it. First of all, the tithe was given to the Levites. And if you were a Levite who received the tithes from the people, you were not allowed to own any land. Well, I don't think most tithe teachers nor most churches would be okay with not being able to own any land. So that part gets left out when they teach the tithe. Also, the biblical tithe was basically a tax and welfare system. The contemporary Christian tithe is far from it. You see, there were three tithes that were required of Israel. One was to support the Levites since they couldn't own any land. One was to be used for the religious festivals in Jerusalem. And one was collected every three years to support the orphans, widows, strangers, and poor among the people. Well, if you average that out, that actually comes to 23.3% of their crops as opposed to just 10%. And it was essentially the tax and welfare system of ancient Israel. It supported the Levites, who were the government workers. It supported the feasts, which were the national holidays. And it was the welfare system that supported the poor. I've never once heard anyone teaching the tithe explain about this 23.3% and explain what it biblically was used for. So not only has it been redefined as far as the contents, it's been reappropriated as to its intended use. So how did we get here? And the answer can be found by examining church history. For the sake of time, we'll just go through it very quickly, but it was not actually until the 4th century, 300 years after Christ, that some Christian leaders began to advocate tithing of income as a Christian practice to support the clergy. But that didn't even become widespread among Christians until the 8th century. For the first 700 years of church history, tithes are hardly ever mentioned. By the 8th century, the tithe actually became a mandatory requirement by civic law in many areas of Western Europe because the church was the state religion of most European nations. And as far as clergy salaries go, ministers were unsalaried for the first three centuries of church history. They followed Paul's example of working to support themselves, accepting voluntary gifts of support from the saints if and when they were given. But when Constantine appeared, he instituted the practice of paying a fixed salary to the clergy from church funds and municipal and imperial treasuries. I mean, after all, the church was made the state religion, and the clergy were government employees, and the emperor wanted them compensated as such. Thus was born the clergy salary, which is a practice that actually has no root in the New Testament. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to give 10% of your income to your, to your local church if you feel that the Spirit leads you to do so. All I'm saying is that that is not what the Bible defines as a tithe. In fact, I do believe in sacrificial giving to support the needy and to help the spread of the gospel. But I feel like putting any number on it that you should give is not something that is in line with New Testament church principles. In fact, 
It's in direct contradiction to places where Paul says, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, you can't follow that principle of giving what you've decided in your heart to give and at the same time say, well, 10% of your gross income, that's the number. So in conclusion, tithing, while it is biblical, is not actually Christian. Jesus Christ did not affirm it. The first century Christians did not observe it. And for 300 years, God's people did not practice it. Tithing did not become a widely accepted practice among Christians until the 8th century. Giving in the New Testament was not by compulsion, nor was it guided by any specific number, but according to one's ability. New Testament Christians gave to help other believers as well as to support apostolic workers, enabling them to travel as missionaries. But the apostles did not have fixed salaries. They usually worked to support themselves. And have you ever noticed that the most ardent lobbyists for the church system and for its definition of tithing are those who receive a wage from the tithes paid into the system? I feel that it's time we heard the perspective of those who do not have a dog in that fight. And that's what I've tried to do today. All I ask of you, my friend, is that you be a student of the word, that you search the scriptures yourself regarding these things and come to your own conclusions. Okay, so there is a rabbit trail that I could go down, but I'm not going to do it. And that would be concerning paying clergy or pastors or whatever you want to call them, right? I'm not going to go down that, that rabbit trail. That will probably be something that maybe you or I cover in a, in a couple episodes. Sure. So I'm going to leave that. I think if you pressed tithe teachers and if you want to, if we want to lump people in to that categorization, we'll just call them tithe teachers. If you want to, if you want to, um, if you, if you were to press a tithe teacher on this and say, uh, where do you see your definition of the tithe? I think that they would say something like, well, what we're doing is we're taking an Old Testament principle and we are basically New Testament buying it uh, because there are aspects of this law that God gave that we think transfer over. Not that it's, you know, the different parts of the law. Some of them, some of it stays with Israel. Some of it is for forever. This is one thing that doesn't just stay with Israel, but does get modified as we go into it as a good general principle for how Christians should live now. What's a response that you have for that? A good general principle that we get from the Old Testament law, just like we get other good general principles that Jesus ne neither affirmed nor denied. Well, there are, there are certain things that do carry over when it comes to ethics and morality. I think that there's no question about that. You know, the, the fact that you should not murder is as true today as it was in ancient Israel. But there are also certain things that don't need to carry over into the New Testament. Um, you know, we don't need to give sacrifices and grain offerings and, and those kinds of things. We don't need to uh, observe the rite of, of circumcision. We don't need to have a temple. Um, we, there's no Ark of the Covenant. There's, there's all kinds of things that go along with the Old Testament ancient Israel worship 
that even those who teach the tithe will say, well, that's not for today. And if you start to, to get into, you know, you need to observe these laws, they'll say, well, no, let's not be legalistic about this. So, I mean, where do we draw the line? If we're going to bring, if we're going to bring the tithe, if we're going to reach back into the the Old Testament and bring the tithe into the New Testament, which, by the way, I don't think you're wrong in that observation. I think that's exactly what happens: is they take this Old Testament principle and say we're going to put this into the New Covenant. Okay, if we're going to do that, we need to actually do it. We need to actually use those funds to take care of widows, orphans, and the poor. We don't need to use those funds to to have a fixed salary that pays. You know, a fixed salary with a 401k that pays a, a church officer. We don't need it to, to pay a mortgage and go into debt on this church building. We need to use it for what it was intended to be used for in the Old Testament. And that is, you know, essentially the tax and welfare system of ancient Israel. Now, we have a tax and welfare system that's already in place uh, with our government here in the United States. So all that's left is you know we need the uh the orphans and widows within the church to specifically be taken care of and a lot of times the passages that you read in the new testament that are about giving uh specifically in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians when Paul tells them about how to collect this offering that offering is going to Jerusalem specifically directly to take care of the poor church members in Jerusalem because there's a famine in Jerusalem at that time and they need help so the the intended use of the tithe is is misappropriated today. Like if we're going to reach back into the Old Testament and take this principle of tithing and say we're going to bring this over into the New Testament, we need to bring all of it. We need to bring the fact that the people who receive the tithes are not allowed to own any land. We need to bring over the fact that the the tithes and if we're going to turn the tithe, the crops into money, we need to use those funds to, to take care of the, the poor, the widows, the orphans, those in need within the church community and not use them the way that they're largely used today. Okay, so let me switch gears just a little bit. We live in America, right? So let's be culturally relevant. Americans are not generally the most selfless people. And uh, that even goes for the people that are stepping into our congregations. There's no indication that the average church member uh, gives to charity or church or whatever any more or less than someone that is not a churchgoer, okay? Average churchgoer, I'm not saying it's you, whoever's listening right now, okay? But what 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 happens whenever the pastor says okay we need something we need we need to set some kind of figure out there to motivate people otherwise they're just not going to do it they're just not going to be giving because they don't have uh, a set a set bar a set expectation to uh to live up to right some people just some people need to to see that figure and uh have uh, a little bit of expectation put on them uh, so that they're doing what God has called them to do. Um, so if we approach it from that aspect, I think there's two uh, two issues that I would take with that. Um, and and that there are those who approach it from that aspect, that the, the 10% is just an example for us, and that's, that's, that's where the bar is set. I think 
number one, what that does is it can turn giving, sacrificial giving to to support those in need uh, into another checkbox. You know, maybe there are those who can give more than 10%. Maybe they can give 20% and they'll still be okay. But they say 10%, check. Uh, maybe there's those who 10% is actually going to hurt them. And I've seen this. I work in the financial industry. I've seen people who are in massive debt, who ha- have broken terrible credit histories, credit scores. And they're, you know, part of the reason is because they're giving money that they can't afford to give. They need to use that money to pay off their debt, to pay their rent, to buy food. And they, they, they give it away. Um, so when you set it as the bar, it can become a checkbox um, that for some people is not even what they are actually capable of. And for some, it's more than what they really are capable of. Um, so I, I think that that is just sort of arbitrary. And um, the other aspect uh, that I think that that creates is an attitude of mistrust in God because, I mean, who says that we need to give people a figure? Shouldn't the Holy Spirit be the one who's – I mean, the Holy Spirit, we say, is the one who is changing people's hearts and lives and turning them to Jesus. That is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to to turn a person's compassion towards those in need – so that they can take care of the orphans, the widows, and the poor. That is the work of the Holy Spirit to change a person's heart to be willing to do that. And when we say, well, we have to instruct people in this, we have to set a figure to it, we have to put the bar at a certain place so that people know what the figure is, we don't allow room for the Spirit to operate, for, for like Paul says, for those people to give each one as they've purposed in their own heart. Because we don't trust God to do his job. And that's, uh, those are the two areas where I think that I, I would take issue with that. All right. So let's start to bring it to a close. Uh, do you have any final thoughts that you want to part people with uh, regarding this slash uh, preview what you're going to talk about next time? Um, no, I mean, final thoughts, really. I just, it's like I said in the conclusion, I, I really want to encourage people to just get into the scriptures and examine what they say about these things for themselves, come to their own conclusions, and don't let those who are relying on the tithe for their for their salary, for their livelihood, to frame what the Bible says in a certain light. Get in there and fi- figure it out for yourself. Maybe you think I'm wrong. Maybe you'll get in there and figure it out for yourself and you'll be like, Colin doesn't know what he's talking about. That's fine. Just go in there and and try and examine it for yourself. Uh, Preview for next time. We're just going to continue down this path of um, examining some of the traditions of the contemporary church and comparing them to to Scripture. And um, yeah, that's, that's where we'll be. All right. And since you said the word examine a couple of seconds ago, That means that our time is running short. We want to thank you, our listeners, for listening in this week. Make sure that you uh, send us questions or comments. Doublecheckpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash doublecheck. And uh, any final thoughts? 
No, thank you for listening. Whether it's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, make sure you rate us, review us. Uh, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'll just be inclined to think that you're a hater. Hater. See you next time. See ya.